Uh, we need His help as we come to the text of Scripture. So let's ask for it. Let's pray to Him. Indeed, O oh God, we pray that You would be merciful to us. Uh, we pray this with hope and with confidence because we know who You are, and most of all because You've given us Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray You'd be deal bountifully with Your servant, even as I open up your book and we point to your word, uh, deal bountifully with your servants who listen, that we would be changed, that we might live and keep your word that you've given us. We pray with the psalmist, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law, namely that we would see the greatness of our Christ, that we would see that there's no one to compare to him, that there's no one more worthy of our trust and devotion. So pull from us the, the trust and worship you're worthy of. For we truly are sojourners on earth. This is not our home. We look for the day when we will see you face to face. So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Sometimes it's hard to receive a gift, isn't it? Strange how that can be, how to be given something yet can seem so difficult. And here's what I mean. Have you ever just been given something, and then you just have this compulsion that you must do something about it. You must return the favor, so we say. Uh, imagine this. You go to a gift exchange. Think of, you know, one of those white elephant Christmas gift exchanges, and uh, if you were like me, you procrastinate, so you didn't really plan ahead very well. So you stop by the store on the way in uh, to get something to give at this giveaway, and you find this $5 decoration that's on sale, which is a win for me, and uh, I spend all of that expense and get this gift already. And you go and give this gift, and, you know, somebody gets it, and they mock a smile, and they're like, oh, that was nice. And then you get something through this gift exchange, obviously not what you gave, and it's worth 10 times as much, such that you feel terrible for the person who got your chintzy decoration. And you think, oh, what can I do? How can I make it up to them? What can I go buy and sneak in their mailbox or something to make up for what little I gave. It's just hard to receive a good gift. We feel like we have to return the favor. Or think about hospitality, and this happens in my own heart, but let alone in the church. Somebody has you over graciously out of the blue, hey, come over to our house for dinner, and we just want to spend some time with you. And then you're driving home after being at dinner at these, say, church members' house, and now it's just you and your wife in the car, and on the way home, what are you already talking about? Oh, well, we got to have them over now. So let's look at our calendars. What are the open dates we have? You feel like you got to pay them back. It's so hard to receive grace because what we find is that grace undercuts. Grace humbles us. And that's what gifts do. And that's true in the Christian life. From beginning to end, we are humbled by grace. And we rejoice in this like we reveled in it last week as we talked about salvation. We are so glad to be saved by grace as a, just a sheer gift, but then in our hearts we struggle and we think, oh, we, I got to make it up to you, God. I, I need to show you that I was worth being graced. I was worth being given favor. I was worth choosing. So we try and pay it back to him. We try and make it up to him. We try and make him proud in that sense. But really, we're just taking pride in ourselves, not willing to accept who we are without him, that we are nothing. And leaning on ourselves, really what we're doing to our spiritual detriment, we're starting by grace, we're starting as a gift, but then we're trying to finish things off depending on us. That's an insult to his gift, even in the gospel. We start by grace, but only to then serve him by our own efforts, by what we can do and accomplish and what we are worthy of. And what this does is it builds up our pride. 
And it just undermines the gospel. It undermines grace as a gift. It undermines what true faith and reliance is. And it undermines what real service and devotion. And so then love back to Christ is all about in the Christian life. In summary, we are not only saved by grace, but we serve Him by grace, relying wholly and fully on what He has done. Grace not only saves us, but it makes us and keeps us humble servants for Him. In other words, never lose sight of your need for grace. It's not you get grace to get into the kingdom and then you got to figure this out on your own. No, you even get into the kingdom and you stay in the kingdom and you minister in the kingdom ever dependent upon His mercy entirely reliant upon his grace, even as you would serve him in gratitude and love for what he has done. Okay, I get what you're saying. All by grace, from salvation to service. Well, what does it look like when we depend upon God by grace to serve him? What does it mean to serve him depending on grace? And we have two exhortations here from Matthew's gospel that will show us Show us what does it mean to serve him dependent on grace. And the first is this. If you're dependent on his grace alone, that means you can serve him with no regrets. We'll see this with the last paragraph of Matthew 19. You can serve him. You can rely upon him. You can give your life to him, but you you don't have to second guess it. There's no need for regrets. There's no need to hold back. Why is that? If salvation truly comes to us as a gift, something we didn't earn, but it's just God gave it to us, then that means whatever sacrifices you make for him, they're entirely worth it. Why do I say that? This God who was so gracious, who was so merciful, he's not going to let you or let him be a debtor to you. He doesn't owe you anything. And so any sacrifices you make for him, he's going to deliver on and far more. Anything you give up for him will never prove a disappointment. And so the word is for us, we can serve him with no reservation, with no regrets. Now, this comes to us through another question from impetuous Peter. Recall from last week how first Jesus had dealt with the self-righteous rich young ruler. There we saw that salvation indeed must be all of grace. For Jesus exposed the man's self-reliance and his love of the world. Jesus revealed the young man's hypocrisy. He couldn't even see his sin. And he revealed his idolatry. The man loved his money. He rested on his money more than anything else and certainly far more than God. And it showed. It showed when Jesus just dared the man, just dared him, just try and let that stuff go. Try and let your riches go. And I'll give you riches in heaven, eternal riches. But the man's heart couldn't let it go. He went away, turned his back on eternal life so he could keep control of as many possessions as as sad as he was to admit it. And when this happened, the disciples watching this all before him, they're just shocked. They eventually asked the question, well, who then can be saved? If that guy's not getting into the kingdom, what chance do we have? Well, and Jesus summed up the situation like this. Look at verse 26. But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. This is not difficult. It's not, there's a hard chance It's not that there's a slim chance. It's not a one in a million. It is impossible as much as it depends upon you. But with God, all things are possible. That means God must do all the work. 
It's God who works, we who receive. It's God who's the one who do, does the labors. He is the one that does the saving. He is the one that died on the cross and rose from the dead. He is the one who grants salvation. It's not your work. You don't contribute to it. It's a gift. It's by faith. It's by grace, not by what you do. That's the only way that this impossible salvation comes impossible. It's when it's not in your hands, but only in his. And yet, Peter maybe misheard, <laughs> as we see by his next question. It has yet to sink in or register what Jesus has just told him. He seems to have misheard Jesus because, you know, good old Peter telling us what's right on the front of his mind. He's quick to go and compare himself to this other guy, the rich young ruler. And he thinks, oh good, I'm not so blind as him. Oh, I'm not so self-righteous as that guy. Why, does, why would he say that? Because he's going to come to Jesus and say, I have left everything. That guy wouldn't do it, but I will. And I have, Jesus. I have left everything. I have followed you. And now he comes with the question to Jesus, so what am I going to get? What's in it for me? Here it is. Look at verse 27. You, you promised him riches. If he'd leave it all, well, well, we left it all. What's going to be for us? Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Look what we've done. What are we going to get? Peter, didn't you hear? Didn't you hear what I was saying? It's not about you and what you do. That's not where this is. Remember, with you, this whole salvation thing is impossible. It has to come to you as a gift, a free gift, grace. Yeah, but I made some pretty big sacrifices, Jesus. I gave up my career. I gave up my nets. I gave up fishing. I've given my life to you. What am I going to get? What are you going to give me? Is this really worth it? Now, those questions, they seem rather mercenary, don't they? What do I get out of this? Especially when you're talking relationships. And that's what this is, how he relates to Jesus. I mean, imagine for a second if your fiancé had said to you, okay, I'll marry you, but what's in it for me? That doesn't sound like love, does it? It's not trust. That sounds like a business deal. In other words... I think Christ would be right to rebuke Peter here. You can just trust me, Peter. You don't need to worry about this. Just trust me. Don't I care for you? And yet our Savior is far more gracious, certainly, than I am. And he doesn't dismiss the great sacrifices, indeed, Peter has made in trust of his Lord. But still, Jesus graciously reminds him. And he reminds him, though, of the rewards that he has promised and will be coming to him, such that in the end they will not at all be ashamed. They will not be disappointed. They will have no regrets in the end for putting all of life's eggs in the Jesus basket. Jesus will deliver in every way. He assures them there's no need to have regrets. It'll all be worth it. And he starts in verse 28, Jesus does, in such a way that he highlights what's true for you as the first disciples, namely the 12. Look at verse 28. Jesus said to them, Well, truly I say to you, In the new world, now stop there for a second. More literally, new world, you might read there, a translation might have, in the regeneration or in the great renewal. Now, now what is that, though? Is that heaven? Is that what he's talking about? 
the eternal state? Well, Jesus clarifies what this new world is, this regeneration he's talking about. He clarifies the timetable as he goes on. So just keep reading in verse 28. Truly I say to you, in the new world, that is, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne. So this anticipates as what's promised in the book of Daniel, chapter 7. That's when Christ will come down from heaven and build and establish His kingdom on earth for a thousand years, where all the nations on the earth will bow and worship and serve Him as He receives a kingdom that will never pass away. But Jesus continues, For not only will the Son reign and be exalted, but He goes on, middle of verse 28, You who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So not only will Jesus be reigning on His throne, but the twelve, it seems then, will reign with Him on thrones of their own, judging the people of Israel. They will have a particularly prominent place in the millennial kingdom as it's known, and then even fast forward for all eternity in the new heavens and new earth. Because we get this picture, if you skip ahead to the end of the story in the Bible and you look at Revelation chapter 21, this is the new heavens, new earth. This is where we live with God forever. This is where the dwelling place of God is with man in that new city, the new Jerusalem. But what do we hear about the new Jerusalem? We find there that the apostles, the 12, are immortalized for all time. Aim of one of the apostles. Here it is, Revelation 21, verse 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So from the millennium to the end of days, the apostles will have a special, special remembrance or role in the eternal kingdom. But quickly, Jesus moves on, and He doesn't hold out a promise merely for the 12, uh, but for all those who obey that gospel call and let go of this life to lay hold of Jesus. Look at verse 29. And everyone then who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold. That's quite a return. That's an astounding promise. A hundredfold. As if you could equate it, every dollar you give over for the name and sake of Christ, he will return it over for a hundred back. Before you decide what to do with your next dollar. Maybe go to your financial advisor and see what kind of return he can give you. Because I'm pretty sure, no offense, it won't be this. Whoa, 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 Rick, you're starting to sound like some health and wealth prosperity preacher. Are you saying we're going to be signing off seed faith offerings that God's going to multiply by a hundred times in this life? Well, no. (laughs) And let me clarify that for you. Actually, let's have Jesus clarify it for us. You can turn over with me to Mark 10, or you can just listen closely. And we're going to look at the parallel account that Mark gives, for it's so clarifying to us what Jesus means here by he'll be multiplying a hundredfold whatever sacrifices we make for the kingdom. And I'm looking at Mark 10, and here we're dealing with the very same context that we have in Matthew. The rich young ruler had just left. He turned down the offer of letting go of everything to lay hold of the kingdom. And Peter asks the same question. He wonders... Well, what am I going to get for all the sacrifices I've made? And Jesus tells of the reward of such a sacrifice. And we hear about it in verse 30. He says, they will, that's those who give up anything for the kingdom, they will receive a hundredfold now in this time, he says. They're going to receive a hundredfold now. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in the age to come eternal life. 
So there are two things I want us to see here to clarify Jesus' meaning. First, Jesus does distinguish with the rewards that will be even in this time and the rewards of the age to come, such that in this time you will receive a hundredfold, and in the time to come you get eternal life. But that hundredfold multiplier, whatever you give up for Christ's name, so to speak, or whatever you lose, houses, families, lands, you'll get it back a hundred times, and that promise is for now. But the second thing you must hear, even about the promises for now, and you can't ignore this, you heard it, you receive along with that hundredfold, what else do you get? It says, with persecutions. And that little phrase is the pin that bursts the prosperity bubble. This is not about your best life now. This is not about seed faith offerings to then so you can win the lottery and enjoy more of this life in and of itself. That's not what this is about. Actually, what Jesus promises here, that those who forsake all, you'll actually get difficulty, trial, and persecutions. Life will actually get harder for you as you let go of this world for the name of Christ. Paul put it this way, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Jesus is not talking about his, your best life now. And yet, even in the midst of this difficulty, even in the midst of letting go of this world, you still receive a hundredfold. What do you mean? For all the family that you may have to give up in this life or who will forsake you and turn from you because of your commitment to Christ, Jesus provides a hundred times more in this new family of faith, you see. So think of it. Perhaps you don't have a father or maybe you never had one that shepherded you and cared for you or somebody you can call in and counsel. And yet he's provided in the church these elders and these men who love Christ and they love his word and they love Christ's people who can be the fatherly counsel that you never had. That's given in the church in this age. Or perhaps your mother's gone. But let the mothers in the faith care for your soul, pray for you, prod you on and move you in gospel ways to encourage you to walk after Christ. Maybe you were an only child, you never had a brother, or maybe your family and siblings, they've rejected you, they've tuned you out because you love Jesus. Well, let your brothers and sisters here in the body, let they rally to you, disciple you and exhort you and strengthen you and hold you up in the faith. Why? Because we are brothers and sisters. That's the family we've been given in the gospel. That is the provision he's talking about here, the glory of God at work in the church. And you can find that in this congregation, but you can find it all over the world a hundred times over. And maybe you've done this. Have you done this? Have you ever traveled and connected with Christians in different cultures or places? If you have, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I've been overseas and connected so quickly and intimately with brothers that I've only just met brothers that we have so little in common. (laughs) We hardly can communicate because of the language barrier. We, we have different activities we enjoy, certainly different foods that we like, and yet we have the most intimate and strongest bond. We're of the same family. We have the same Lord. We have the same Redeemer. We rejoice in the same gospel. What are we? We're family, and we take one another arm in arm such that the oneness and connection that I can have with brothers in places like South Africa, in Kenya, in Croatia, in Jordan, it's way stronger than even the connections I might have with my very next-door neighbors in Midlothian. Why? That's the family of faith. That's the people of God. That's the kind of blessing he's talking about here. 
That's what he means when he says, whatever you give up for him in this life, you'll have what you need a hundredfold when you need it. And I've said nothing even thus far yet about the physical needs that he talks about here. But Christ will meet those through the church too. As many of us have experienced over and over again. I've seen it in the congregation. Those needing cars, one's given right out of the church. Those needing jobs, connections are made. Resumes are forwarded. Those needing meals, those needing help, those needing money, those needing places to stay. We've seen it abundantly provided over and over. That's how God meets his needs. He meets the needs of his people through the body. He's giving you the body to meet the needs of the body to keep this promise a hundredfold over. But finally, to come to it, all the blessings and promises a hundredfold in this life now even pales in comparison to that final prize for trusting in Christ, for letting go of this world to lay hold of him. And what will that be for us? But nothing less than the glory of eternal life. Look at verse 29, back to Matthew 19. Matthew 19, 29. And everyone, again, who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Remember, that was the very thing the rich man was after. He opened with that question. It's what he wanted so badly. What good thing can I do to get eternal life? Well, here's the answer. And there's only one answer. Trust Christ. Put your faith in Christ to do the impossible. To give you, a sinner, eternal life before a holy God. That is the only way. You got, it's got to come to you by grace, that is. It's got to come as a gift. This is not something you can work and earn. You must just believe that God justifies the ungodly because Jesus died for you, the ungodly. You can never earn this. But to those that will trust him and trust this gospel, he will give it eternal life. He will deliver. He will keep all of his word, and he will not break any one or aspect of his promise. In other words, as you live for him, as you sacrifice for him, he's not going to leave you in the lurch. He's not going to fail to take care of you and your needs. Even for an eternity or right now as you serve him, he will deliver. In a way, it's a return to the teaching Jesus gave us and the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. Remember how that ended? Recall there, he, he urged us, stop worrying. Put down the sin of anxiety. Put it away. You don't need to worry. Your Father knows. He cares for you. Indeed, trust Him. Lean into His gracious care. Here's how He ends it. He says this. This is Matthew 6, verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, that's the pagans, seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. He knows you need these things. Doesn't he care for you? Doesn't he love you? Of course he does. Won't he deliver? Of course he will. Which then results in this final exhortation, he says, verse 33 of that chapter, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The go of this world, make Christ and his kingdom your first priority. Make his righteousness your pursuit. And as you do that, trust him as he ends it. All these things, whatever you need, when you need it, will be added to you. He'll give you what you need, he promises. You don't need to second guess your sacrifices for him. They're going to prove worth it. 
And I pray you see it before the end. But at least at the very end on that final day, it'll be so clear that he is so delivered on every one of his promises such that you'll have no regrets for anything you gave up for him in this life. If anything, as it comes to that final day, the only thing you will regret is what? Why didn't I give him more? Why didn't I trust him more? And so it is in summary then in this way, that salvation you see is by grace alone, not of what you do. And in that way, it's a gift that entirely humbles us. And Jesus summarizes that very point with this proverbial saying that concludes this chapter. So back to chapter 19, look now at verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. It's not about what you have. It's not about what you do. It's not about what you contribute. It's about Christ and trusting in Him. What does this mean? That means then that many who presume because of what they do or what they contribute, who think that they are first in this life, like the rich young ruler, right? They're going to find themselves last at the next in the judgment, stripped of all their stuff and with no hope of eternal life. While those who cast themselves on Christ, who let go of this world, like humble children, remember that's where this chapter started, like humble children, they totally depend upon Him. Those who are last in this world mocked for their weakness, mocked for their foolishness. Those who look like last in this life, God will prove His word true, and He will make them to be found first in the next. It's a great reversal as they get eternal life. But you see, it doesn't depend on what we do. It's all in Christ. God's the one who will see to it. And that's the very gift and work of grace. To trust Him in His word. To humble yourself now. To leave riches aside now. To set aside earthly wants and securities now. To rest on Christ crucified for the sure reward that's going to come. Indeed, that to go down, this is the way the kingdom works. To go down is to go up. To be last is to be first in God's sight. That he will then vindicate all of your sacrifices at the resurrection. That's trust and faith that relies on grace. Such that in the end, you will have no regrets. His promises are true and sure. So serve him with no regrets and no reservation. He will deliver on all that He has promised. Second, though, not only does grace motivate us to serve Him without regret, we know He will deliver. He's given us salvation for free as a gift. Won't He he come through on whatever we sacrifice for Him? Of course He will. But furthermore, also grace drives us to serve Him with no resentment. Jesus shows us next that this principle... This proverb he has that the last shall be first and first shall be last. And not only applies to whether one is in or out of the kingdom, again, to contrast the rich young ruler with the humble disciples, but to this grace principle, this reversal principle, it applies even within the kingdom. It humbles us right inside the kingdom, such that that start to think they have reason for pride or superiority in the kingdom. They're going to once more be humbled by His grace. Because what we see is by the end, whether first or last, in the place of the kingdom, we are all at the even playing field of needing His immeasurable grace. 
What does this mean? There's no place for superiority. There's no place or room for jealousy. There's no resentment in this kingdom. Well, let's see him show it to us now as we turn to chapter 20. And he gives us this parable. It begins in verse 1, and it says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house, who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, for time, we must summarize. But through verses 1 to 7, the events are rather straightforward. The master goes out to hire day laborers at various watches of the day, and he keeps hiring more laborers throughout the different watches. First, he goes out early in the morning. That would be 6 a.m., the very beginning of the day, to begin the 12-hour workday, which would end at night. Now, it's important to note, we can't gloss over this, in verse 2, we see that the master and the workers agree on what the compensation should be. A day's labor, they agree to a denarius. After agreeing with the laborers, verse 2, for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And that's a fair price. That's the fair wage. A day laborer earned a denarius a day. That's the going rate. This is all normal. However, as I said, after hiring those first men, he goes out again. And he goes out at 9 o'clock. And then he goes out at noon. And then he goes out at 3 in the afternoon, hiring more and more workers. And then he even goes out at 5 o'clock. That's the 11th hour, right? Literally to hire just a few more. Now, here's the thing we need to note. As he hires all of these more workers at all these different times, he never says how much he's going to pay them. The only thing we hear is this in verse 4, where he tells them, he promises, the master promises, whatever is right, where you could say just, I will give you. But the amount, don't know. Surely they all understand or assume it's going to be according to how many hours they worked. It seems agreeable to all. They're not expecting a denarius. They didn't do a full day's work, but they'll get what's fair for the time they put in. They will get what's fair, right, and just. But as Jesus is about to reveal to us, not everything about his kingdom is fair, right, or just. Some things are far better. Look at verse 8. And when evening came, The owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. So it's evening. The day's work is over. And he's going to settle accounts with these day laborers. They probably needed these funds to even survive this day. And so he's going to start with those that he hired last. The point is those who worked the least. Verse 9. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, this would be a shock, (laughs) a delightful surprise. These workers who had been hired at the very last moment, and so the implication is they were in the marketplace. Nobody has hired them. If you're going to read between the lines, why didn't they hire them? They're probably not very desirable workers. Either they're known to be lazy, or maybe they are unfit, or maybe they they have less capabilities. So they've just been overlooked all day, and yet they've been hired and brought in. But they were only brought in for an hour, and so they should expect just a pittance. And what they've gotten, they've gotten each a full day's wage, like they did a full day's work. And what grace! I mean, what generosity overflows from this master! And you can just imagine as they get the denarius, just the the smiles on their faces, the thank yous going all around. You can imagine his praises coming from them and from all. The master, he's a jolly good fellow. Nobody can deny. 
I love this man. And I think those who were hired first, they are the ones who had the biggest smiles of all. You see, they saw these guys who worked just an hour get a denarius. And they start doing a little calculating in their brain. Oh, boy. He's giving out a denarius not for a day, but for an hour. And we did 12. We've hit the gold mine, boys. I'm going on a vacation these next two weeks. This is great. I just imagine them waiting in line, big smiles on their faces, rubbing their hands together, just salivating on all that coin they're going to get. We scored today. Verse 10. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. This is the next shocking moment. One denarius. That's it. That's all. Where's the 11 others? Their disappointment turns into ingratitude, turns into grumbling, verse 11. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house. Now, before we so self-righteously condemn these guys, see if you can't relate to their objection. Verse 12, they grumbled saying, these last worked only one hour. And you made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And in fact, what are they saying? That's not fair. You cheated us. We deserve more. We deserve better. You owe us. Why? Because we did more work. And we did the hard work under the sun. We bore the brunt of the labor. That's not fair. And really notice what their great complaint was. What rubbed them wrong most of all, right there in the middle of verse 12, you made them equal to us. That's not fair because we're not equal. You dared to equate us. We're not the same. We're better. We worked more, far more. You owe us. And yet in this case, let's hear the master's reply to such insults and ingratitude. Verse 13. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Ooh, well, yeah. Look back up to verse 2, remember? After agreeing with the laborers for denarius, they did agree to this arrangement. Master didn't rob them. He didn't cheat them or withhold anything from them. He gave them what they deserved, what they earned. And the master's rebuke continues. Look at verse 14. Take what belongs to you and go. I chose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Now to start off, notice this first. The master doubles down to say this. I meant to do it this way. This was my choice. This wasn't a miscalculation. This wasn't a mistake. This wasn't an oversight. I intended to give those last workers the same I gave you. But that's not fair. We did more work. We deserve more. No, you don't. You got what you deserved. You got what you earned. You got what you agreed to. The master then says, so understand, me paying those last workers the same as you was nothing about what is right or fair or equitable. It's all about grace. It's about generosity. 
And you don't seem to like that very much. Because here comes this stinging rebuke at the end of verse 15. Or do you begrudge my generosity? More literally, is your eye evil because I am good? Or another translation, are you jealous because I am generous? And that's it. That's exactly it. They're jealous. They want the good things for themselves. That is, they love, they delight in the idea of a gracious master as long as the grace falls on them. As long as they get a cut of the generosity pie. But as soon as others start getting grace, what happens? We want to revert back to merits, back to works. We want to go back to, but I'm better than him and I can show you. But you can't have it both ways. You can't rejoice in God's grace to you and then complain when he shows more grace to others. Because what's it going to be? Are you going to have a just and righteous Christ or a just and a gracious one? And if you want to choose just and gracious, and happily, that's precisely who our Christ is. He is still just, even with his grace. And and that's why there's this whole cross. That is the payment of justice that you might get grace. Justice is satisfied. Mercy to you. The cross came that he can be gracious, that he can be merciful, that he can be slow to anger and abound. And I mean abound and overflow in love to sinners like you, but not just you every sinner over every kind that looks to Christ for saving. Is that not the gracious Christ we all need? He satisfies it all, all the justice to give us all in Christ, all the mercy. But what does this mean? That means mercy comes to the worst of sinners and the most respectable sinners. But it means it's all grace and it's all of God. And so what do we see then? Grace is humbling, isn't it? It reverses and turns upside down all of our proud expectations. We think we're something. We think we're great. We think we should be first. Why? Why would we think that? Because of what we do or don't do in the sense of sins. Or because of what we contribute, the sacrifices we make. We start to take pride in ourselves. And what's happening, that pride is pulling us down from the front and putting us in the back. The first are becoming the last. Such that Jesus concludes in verse 16, so the last will be first and the first last. This is the way even in the kingdom, the last become first and the first last. We're humbled before him, humbled and cut down by this gospel of grace. So that those who thought themselves to be significant in the kingdom, again, think about Peter, what are we going to get? We've made all of these sacrifices. Look at what we've done. But again, Peter, it's not about what you do. Don't you see? Nor is it about what you will do. Salvation, eternal life has to be God's working, not yours. Otherwise, it's impossible. That means it's got to come by grace as a gift. Just as it comes to every other sinner that looks to him for saving. Such that if we start to forget that, Start thinking we didn't need as much grace, that we were better than someone else, or we will be better. We start thinking, look at what I'm doing, what I deserve. And we abandon grace altogether. Such that those who start thinking about what they deserve 
we'll discover in the end maybe they weren't so great after all. The first becomes last. But those who knew they had nothing to offer, knew they had nothing of consequence, but maybe they get more grace and they lay hold of eternal life even still. So that what happens in the end? In the big picture, you got the apostles. I mean, they gave away their lives. Most of them literally martyred for the faith. There's no greater price you can pay or give. And then you got the thief on the cross. Who Think about that thief. We know from the Gospels, he started off mocking, joining the mocking on Christ too. But then sometime as he's hanging on the cross, God changes his heart. And he says, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And yet, even for that brief moment, what happens? The apostles, the thief on the cross, they all get grace through that death and resurrection. Something none of them, not in the least bit, deserved. And in that way, he will treat all those in Christ equally, giving immeasurable grace. Grace humbles us all. So the question to us then has to come, are you going to resent that? Are you going to begrudge that, that he shows grace to others? Are you going to be jealous of that? Are you going to move? Have you moved away from grace and are starting to rely on what you do or will do or won't do, your performance? And here's a few signs that that's going on in your heart. First, are you frequently comparing yourself to others? And you find to do so with resentment and jealousy. For example, you resent those who indulge in sin and seem to get away, get away with it. Or you resent those who succeed in life, who are blessed, who get more blessings than you. You're jealous of the newlyweds. You're jealous of new parents. You're jealous of the person with the newer car, the newer house, the better spouse, the better kids. And you wonder, why, God? Haven't I prayed to you? Haven't I pleaded with you? Haven't I served you all of the years? Look at all I'm doing for you. Don't I deserve better? And as soon as that comes out of my mouth, what have we said? I don't need grace anymore. I'm back to what I deserve. Maybe it's shown most through that question. Are you willing to show others grace when they don't deserve it? Are you willing to serve others when they don't seem to serve others themselves? Are you willing to show grace to others when they won't show grace to you back? In other words, are you willing to humble yourself? But that's really hard. That's really, really hard. It is. But that's what grace is. Undeserved favor. And isn't that exactly what you needed in the gospel? Even more than you know? And we see it here. Just flip over a page or look down to verse 26. Look at the grace of our Christ given to us. And we see here the ultimate model of grace on display. Verse 26 of Matthew 20, starting in the middle, it says, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. That's how it works in the kingdom. You get low. He gives grace to the humble, and we see it ultimately put on display with our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and he did so by giving his life as a ransom so you can get grace. So why do you think you're better? Never move on from this. Never move on from your need for his death for you. 
Never move on that you needed all that He offers and you offer Him nothing. For it is, as we get to heaven, we will st- He will stand among us receiving our praises, not because of all the service we offered Him, but because of all the grace He had given to us. And may we follow Him in that like, like model, showing that grace to others, that we never move beyond it. So let's follow Him. Let's serve Not to be served, but to give our life as a ransom to point to the ultimate one. Because we know if you do, Christ won't disappoint you in the end. He will deliver on every one of His promises. You won't be disappointed. And furthermore, as you serve and give of yourself, get your focus off of you, you'll see there's no place for resentment. There's no place for jealousy. We're all needy sinners feasting on our gracious Christ. Let's do that even as we come and thank him around this table. As I pray, I'm going to ask the men who have been nominated to come forward and help distribute the elements. Let's pray together. Truly, it is a great feast, our Christ, what you've given us in the gospel, that you have given us your very self. You sacrificed yourself for us. You've humbled us that we might receive grace. And we confess again that we are sinners, that we are proud, that we have so quickly diverted from so great a salvation, but tether us and bring us back home through the reminder of the cross. It's not because of us, but it's all because of you, and it's because of you may we serve you with no reservation. Forgive us for our selfishness, but we delight in a great Savior. Change us. Make us a people earnest for good works. Again, because you're worthy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.